0: We've got to be able to provide care in a cost effective manner, and we've got to do it in a way that raises our income.
1: We're experiencing the most disruptive time in the history of healthcare. With this podcast, I'm going to connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders to help you thrive in these unprecedented times. I'm your host, Randy Moore, CEO of the AANA. And this is the Moving the Needle Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to have Tom Barabell join us. We're gonna talk about a variety of, I think, really interesting topics, including opioid free anesthesia. We're gonna talk about point of care ultrasound, what that is, where it's going, and why it's important for nursing anesthesiology to embrace this emerging skill set. Tom is uh, the founder of the Society for F- Opioid-Free Anesthesia, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to education and research around well, opioid-free anesthesia and post-operative pain management. He specializes in obstetric anesthesia, which is uh, near and dear to my heart still, acute surgical pain management, non-surgical pain management, and point-of-care ultrasound. He has a bachelor's degree in nursing from Ohio State, a master's of science of nursing from Case Western Reserve, and a doctorate in nursing practice with a pain management fellowship from the University of South Florida. Well, Tom, thanks. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with us here at Moving the Needle. And I've been really curious about the work that you've been doing for some time now, uh, and I think we're going to dig into that, particularly as it relates to SOFA. But I'm curious before, uh, you know, I'd like to use the opportunity, especially we're having conversations today or, you know, in this period of time to pick your brain and ask what you're seeing, you know, in, in the clinical environment in terms of the anesthesia market. You know, what, what's been your experience? Are you seeing any trends that, uh, that are related to COVID or, or might be accelerated to, uh, because of COVID or things that you're seeing changing in, in your clinical environment? Yeah. Well,
0: first of all, thanks for having me. Um, this is a great opportunity. I love to to kind of talk and and about the work that I'm doing and and things that are going on. Yeah i've I've never seen a more dynamic marketplace than we have right now, and uh, COVID has certainly changed things a lot and in, in multiple directions. Really, uh, you know, first of all, whoever thought that you know, something would happen that would have the ability to put anesthesia providers out of work, right? Mm. I mean, that's yeah. the, the one part of the marketplace that actually still makes money is surgery. And, and who could have predicted any sort of uh, situation where uh, surgery wouldn't be done? Yeah. So that was huge. And I think, thankfully, and, and hopefully, we're past that. Um and we see people getting back to work and and surgery starting to pick up again and and thank God for uh, the vaccines and the fact that we're you know fingers crossed hopefully at the beginning of the end of this this nightmare. Mm-hmm. But at the same time it um, it has really sort of given us the opportunity to to change a lot of things that were wrong and and sort of the emergency mandates that were put through, you know there's the group that I'm a part of was able to gain contracts uh, because of that in, in certain markets where the previous group wasn't really fulfilling their role very well, but the hospital felt uh, sort of tied to them and and the ability to to change anesthesia groups uh, was just too difficult. But with the ability to get some emergency licensing and credentialing done, they were able to, to change anesthesia groups and switch over to our group um, during the, the epidemic. I want to
1: kind of d- double click on that for me, Tom. What, what was missing in that contract or that business relationship that wasn't being fulfilled that now is?
0: Um, <laughs> you're gonna this is gonna blow your mind. So, it was in a, a small market, and this hospital uh system had five, five hospitals or five locations, and this anesthesia group had the contract at all five of them. Um, at this one particular hospital, they you know, uh, multiple things. The biggest thing is that, um, you know, they had held that contract for for decades. And so they felt that they had a monopoly over the system. And so they were refusing to, they they would only sign a one month contract and they would only sign it on the last day of the month. So they were kind of playing this game of, you know, if you don't give us what we want, you won't have anesthesia services next month. And we know that it's going to take you months and months and months to, you know, do an RFP and get another group in here and get them credentialed. So so they were trying to, to hold the hospital system hostage, essentially. Um, and then, you know, just things like they weren't doing regional anesthesia at this hospital, uh, they weren't even offering that service. So they, they were doing a poor job of it, uh, of providing anesthesia services on top of this sort of antagonistic relationship. And so the second the hospital had the ability to, uh, you know, emergently credential people uh, quickly, you know, that, that group was out. Yeah. For
1: me, that, that, that tells a story, a couple of, a couple of lessons. <laughs> one is don't get complacent, right, regardless of what you're doing, especially if you are in a contractual relationship with another party. The, the other one is that you got to, you, you know, those kinds of relationships should be partnerships, right? And if you're holding the other, par- the other party hostage, it, it, that is never going to end well, ever. It may take time, but it, it, ultimately the other party is going to, I think, grow tired of being used and abused. And, and they will go to the market. It's inevitable. And I see this happening all the time in the anesthesia marketplace where groups uh, get complacent. Uh, they don't want to provide the services they want that the surgeons or the facility are requesting. And they don't uh, want to treat their business relationship as a partnership. And now the market's not going to tolerate that, you know, and, and there's so much churn, there's so much opportunity. I mean, I think that's a lesson that anyone who has any interest in, in entrepreneurship or having contracts or bidding contracts has to be cognizant of uh, that, you know, as, as comfortable as you think you are, it could all change the very next day.
0: Exactly. And I think with our, our nursing backgrounds, you know, our focus on, patient care and patient outcomes is is huge we're very familiar with that um where we don't have a lot of training and where we uh fall down a lot of times is our ability to partner with an organization with the surgeons with the hospital administration Mm. to make that happen and so that skill of bringing together a system and getting a system moving in the direction to increase patient care is a skill that we all need to learn, but that's kind of the foundation or that we can really use that to build those relationships because whenever you get people working together for a good cause, that's hugely powerful. I mean, that's a bond that's hard to break. Yeah. Yeah. And that is
1: one of the things that is just so interesting to me is when, I, when I'm having conversations with you and other folks who are really, I think, keyed into what's happening, not only at the 100,000-foot level, but understanding how that impacts anesthesiology care today and, and tomorrow, I'm consistently struck by the fact that there is significant, I guess the word, it's overused, but I'm going to use it, disruption. There's so much disruption in our environment, and COVID-19 has accelerated that. And I've heard many people who are a lot smarter than me and a lot more knowledgeable about this have said that you know the anesthesiology landscape, the business landscape, is going to change significantly. Uh, it's already, it was already undergoing a transformation pre-COVID, but you know with these hospitals really struggling to to, to maintain their margins, with a lot of dissatisfied chief C, you know CEOs and chief operating officers are now increasingly looking at anesthesiology, which is either number one or number two biggest cost center for the. For the hospital or the system, they're, they're asking questions that haven't been asked before, and they're raising their expectations about anesthesia services. Is that is that what you're are you seeing the same thing or hearing the same thing?
0: Yeah, you know, uh, we all in the sort of anesthesia world know uh, how sort of ineffective and wasteful the anesthesia care team model is. But it's one thing to, to know that from an insider perspective. But really, at this point in time, the outside world is being driven to look for those sorts of solutions. There's just a, a financial imperative that they've got to make things more efficient or perish. And so their willingness to, to listen to alternative ideas, alternative staffing models, to find those cost-saving methods, it is huge right now. And so, you know, and it's sort of a teeter-totter, right? On one side you have income and on the other side you have expenses. And so we've got to, to manage that. We've got to be able to provide care in a cost-effective manner And we've got to do it in a way that raises our income. And, you know, so that's the other side of the equation as well. And you have to have uh, an anesthesia uh, anesthesia group, um, you've got to be able to manage that. And as individual providers, you have to understand that dynamic and how you fit into that. Yeah, for
1: sure. And, and part of that, and I've heard you speak to this, and, and I know you're a strong proponent, is, is bringing clinical solutions uh, to the table, like uh, you know, point-of-care ultrasound, like regional anesthesia, like non-opioid anesthesia. Where, where do you see that in terms of market, providing marketability, attractiveness, added value to the hus- to the, into the hospital decision Makers, are, are you seeing that start to come into the conversation?
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, my my main hospital uh, that I work at in Atlanta, we just had a, a meeting with them, and one of the things that came out of that meeting, uh, you know, essentially our contract renewal negotiation, was that over the past year, even though case numbers were down, we were able to maintain the income and the revenue generation because of implementing things like uh, increasing the use of regional anesthesia, which is an additional, something that not only uh, gets hosp- reduces complications, gets patients out of the hospital faster, So we're driving down the cost aspect of things, but at the same time, it's a billable procedure so you can increase uh, revenue and income. Um, and you can say the same thing about Opioid free anesthesia. You know, we're reducing complications, and now there's actually billing codes for it so you can bill for the use of opioid free anesthesia as an additional charge. Uh, Another thing that is really starting to take off um, in the CRNA community is uh, chronic pain management as an additional service that can be offered. And so, you know, not only are you keeping patients out of the emergency room, reducing complications or costs to the, the hospital, but that's a, a huge revenue generator. And so uh, a lot of these smaller hospitals that otherwise wouldn't have that service, wouldn't have that income, um, that, that's just a, a huge benefit for, for any hospital, any anesthesia group, because now you're, you're not only cutting costs to the hospital, but you're increasing revenue generation. And yeah, you're doing amazing. it in a way that, that benefits the patients and that's something i i anecdotally that's something i
1: i think i i I found you know before i moved into this job i that i have now at the aana i I ran a perioperative business unit in a hospital in central illinois and we started a pain clinic uh, in a community that desperately needed a pain clinic and you know there were um, physicians in the community who were writing prescriptions, uh, but there were no interventional pain uh, opportunities for those patients within 30 to 45 minute drive. And, and so we had all these patients who were having what I would characterize as inappropriate level of opioid prescriptions long-term. And you know, the sequelae associated with that, Tom. And I think about that, that, you know, that, that is a massive value that you bring as an anesthetist, uh, to the community and to the hospital in which you serve and and only not only are you dealing with a a, a real problem that has not gone away by the way uh nineteen has not eliminated the opioid epidemic it's just uh, <laughs> it's just decreased our focus on it and, and it, it's and we know based on the data that it's getting worse uh and uh, it remains a huge problem in this country but I digress to your point. What I would recommend, and I've said this many times, is, you know, if the community needs it, if the hospital needs it, I think there is a real opportunity for nurse anesthetists uh, to start an inter- interdisciplinary pain clinic for patients at, who who are likely undertreated from an interventional perspective and overtreated from a, from a prescription perspective. And so I'm glad you, you brought that out. You know, the other thing that I think is really interesting that I'd like to hear your opinion on is the development in the proliferation of point of cure ultrasound, which was something was not even in my vocabulary, not even in the lexicon of, of anesthesia when I was in school, which was not that long ago, by the way, I know I, I might sound like I'm ancient, but I graduated in 2005 and no one was talking to me about point of cure ultrasound at that time. Tell me a little bit about your perspective of what, where we're at with that and where you think it's, it, it's going.
0: Sure. We're, um, you know, very rapidly reaching a tipping point on point-of-care ultrasound. We have all the data, all the studies out there showing that it improves patient care. It reduces complications. It gives us the ability to make better decisions. I mean, there's no other modality out there where a bedside clinician can literally look inside a patient's body seeing see what's going on and and use that information to guide their treatments, right I mean there's nothing else it's and it and it doesn't cost anything, and there's no uh, risk involved. Um, you know we're essentially sending sound waves through their bodies yeah so we have we have all those studies done, all that data out there. you know certainly the the early adopters are are out there, they're doing it. And, and we're in that section of the bell curve where use of it is, is dramatically increasing, um, what we need to, to realize is that as a profession, this is not going away, that this is quickly becoming or it, it already really is required knowledge and required skills for every single anesthesia provider. And so the question is, when are we going to adopt that? Because we're going to have to. I mean, it's inevitable. And what are the risks versus benefits of doing it right now versus waiting? And to me, the risk is if we wait, we risk sort of falling behind, right? And we risk no longer really being able to call our cells or to be independent anesthesia providers because we don't have one of the, the key skills and knowledge necessary to do that. And on the other hand, what we can gain by early adoption is we can be the first anesthesia profession to incorporate and claim 100% you know, knowledge and training in this area. And we have the chance to, to, to move ahead and to be first on that. So take me
1: into the, to the future a little bit. So let's say, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the time horizon is, Tom, but let's say three, five, seven years. And we're seeing almost a ubiquitous use of Ponicure ultrasound in some way. What does that look like? What would clinical practice look like at that time? And then maybe we can reverse engineer how to make that a, uh, a standard in terms of the educational preparation, but also maybe some of the work that the ANA does. So take me into the future. And I know that the future is today in many areas, but how, how would that, what would that look like?
0: Sure, so the, the first and probably the most prevalent use that you're going to see is having it incorporated as part of the preoperative assessment. Right, you know. Right now, we pull out our stethoscope, we listen to the heart and the lungs. You know, that's just part of every pre-anesthetic assessment that's done. Five, ten years down the road, whoever's doing the the pre-operative assessment is going to wheel an ultrasound into the patient's room, and they're going to do uh, a quick sixty-second, two-minute uh, ultrasound examination as part of the the history and the physical exam. Mm-hmm. You know, things like. Uh, a cursory examination of the heart, the lungs, uh, looking at the stomach for gastric content, some sort of examination looking at fluid volume. Does the patient need some more IV fluids before induction of anesthesia? And there'll probably be a very quick, limited exam that gets endorsed by the various groups um, as this is the minimum level of information that you should gather Uh, prior to inducing anesthesia, because we'll have these studies that show doing this exam reduces intraoperative complications, whether that's hypotension, breathing problems afterward, you know, guide our choice of sedation versus LMA or intubation. And then based on, you know, problems that are encountered intra or postoperatively, there's going to be uh, various exams that will be recommended. So if you have a patient who has a low oxygen saturation in PACU and you don't wheel the the ultrasound machine over there and use that as part of your differential diagnosis and, and treatment, um, you're opening yourself up to liability because according to the literature, according to the recommendations, that is the the optimal uh, method. Or as you go down your your diagnostic algorithm, that's going to be in there as part of uh, the the diagnosis and treatment algorithm is looking. Do they ha- do they have a PE? How is their diaphragm moving? You know, is there any atelectasis? Things of that nature. Yeah. So so that's how I see um, this sort of developing in the future. And where are you at
1: personally in terms of your clinical utilization of POCUS? Are, are you are you at that level? Or are you
0: what, to, to, what are you doing? So currently, I'm not at the level of using it on every single case, you know, as part of my preoperative assessment. And, you know, in my, in my current practice right now, the vast majority of, of what I'm doing is obstetric anesthesia, which is a lot different. You know, we're not really messing with people's ability to breathe and I'm not doing a lot of general anesthesia. But certainly any time that there's a clinical question that I can answer, using it, I certainly do, or any time that, you know, there's a a difficult patient might be obese or scoliosis or uh, anything that might lend to a difficult spinal epidural, I'm absolutely uh, bringing the ultrasound machine into the room and doing that. So, let's dig into,
1: you know, on that same topic, let's say, you know, as we, we continue that journey where we think that Focus is going to be ubiquitous or near ubiquitous in clinical practice at some point in time in the relative near future. What would you like to see the profession and you know, I say the profession talking about you know the the whole landscape we're talking about the council on accreditation the ANA the NBC a how would you like them to start positioning themselves?
0: You know we have a, a lot of, of good data out there as far as what the the necessary entry level basic skills should be you know um And what sorts of exams really lend themselves to improvement in patient care, reducing complications, things of that nature? Mm -hmm. So, as far as the the overarching, you know, the the ANA, you know, really should be coming out with some sort of statement regarding the use of of ultrasound. Um, We're going to need to see development of educational programs for the providers that are already out there practicing to teach them the skills, we need to start getting some recommendations, guidelines um, in place for the nurse anesthesia programs as far as what what training needs to be done for the the nurse anesthesia residents going through their training, and then how do we sort of test and uh, look at competence in in a board-like scenario. Mm
1: What about, uh, do you see, do you envision, do you anticipate a need for an additional demonstration of clinical competence, whether it's through certification, a fellowship? uh, Where do you see any, do you see a subspecialization here relative to POCUS or do you see this as part of the toolkit that every anesthetist, every anesthesiology provider should have?
0: So they're both. Both and, right? (laughs) So there's, Definitely need for entry-level information for all anesthesia providers. Um, anyone graduating in the next five years should feel absolutely comfortable taking an, an ultrasound machine, putting a probe on a patient, and deciding if they have, you know, what their gastric contents are or what their uh, ejection fraction is, things of that nature. There should be some very basic skills that all anesthesia providers should be able to do. I think there's also room out there for additional fellowship level training, Um, having those people at every clinical site who are kind of the the super user experts who uh, are setting up the uh, standards for that practice, uh, who are making sure that All the providers in that practice have the skills and knowledge necessary, who are, um, and also for sort of train the trainer sort of things. All these nurse anesthesia programs are going to need to have their faculty trained at a higher level so that they are able to then come back and and train the, the nurse anesthesia residents. So there's, there's definitely a need for people who have a higher level fellowship training, uh, but then there's also a basic standard that, that everyone should be able to meet. Yeah. I'm
1: curious, I'm going to switch topics here quickly or briefly yeah. uh,
0: or both. Uh,
1: question, you know, about the work that you're doing with SOFA. Uh, you're a founding member uh, and, and a driving force behind the work that you, uh, before the, behind that organization. Where are you at? Where's the organization at? What are you working on? What's your vision for the long term for that organization?
0: You know, uh, we've been using the, the time sort of afforded to us through COVID to kind of switch gears and to change our focus a little bit. And what we're really looking forward to in this next year is really starting to use SOFA as a a meeting place for people who are out there doing the research, really driving uh, the industry and to sort of bring them all together. And so one of the things that has really changed is how we do education and sort of these sort of Zoom meetings and online virtual presentations have really uh, sort of taken off as a result of of the COVID epidemic. And so we're kind of we're using this time to position ourselves to to offer more services in that sort of field. But our my sort of vision for the organization at this point is to really make it a, a meeting place where all the, the great minds kind of come together and can bounce ideas off each other and learn from each other. That makes sense.
1: Before I let you go, Today, Tom, I have a question that I've been asking all of the guests, and I stole from Dave Stakovec, who's the who does the Coaching for Leaders podcast. And I love this question because it's a tough one. But I'm curious: over the last year, what's something you've changed your mind
0: on? You know, I think the biggest thing is um, sort of changing uh, not a core thought, but uh, my process and moving from sort of absolute thinking to thinking of things more on a a continuum. And, you know, when I first got out of school, I really, I hated the anesthesia care team. I didn't really care to, to work with anesthesiologists. And I felt like I was sort of, you know, working with the enemy or sleeping with the enemy sort of thing. And and I I had some negative experiences that kind of drove that a little bit as well. But instead of thinking, you know, sort of this us versus them thinking uh, in the past year, um, I joined the anesthesia group who's really done a great job of moving into marketplaces that have been very hostile to CRNAs or very restrictive to CRNAs and, and sort of expanding CRNA scope of practice in those marketplaces. But what that's required is... Starting out in an anesthesia care team model, where because that's what the hospital wanted, so it's necessary to to do that just to get your foot in the door. Um, but then working in that model and developing the relationships with the, the surgeons and the hospital administration, and improving our abilities and worth, and using that to to expand CRNA practice in that market. So that's sort of a long-winded answer, wow. uh, long way to get there. Yeah, I, I well.
1: I think it's really insightful, right? I mean, and that there it is, I've heard several times from you, I think, from you today that it, it's, it's typically not a binary, you know, decision or situation. There, there, there are shades of gray and there's ways to work within ambiguous or complex relationships. And even in the OR, <laughs> and even with, even with anesthesia politics, there is a way uh, to make it work. And, and the folks who are going to make it work, the folks who will make it work are the ones who are going to win in the marketplace. And some of those practices will be CRNA only. An increasing, I think, percentage of those practices will be CRNA and anesthesiologists working collaboratively in a progressive anesthesia model that leverages everyone's education, training, and licensure to to an optimal degree. And I think that's what I'm hearing from you today, Tom.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, in the end, this This profession, this marketplace, ends up being about relationships more than anything else. You know, sure, we have to show up. We have to have the science and the knowledge and skills to to do our job. But what what drives the contracts, what drives all of this is, is really the relationships you're able to build. And that's a key takeaway that I've heard from
1: several of uh, Moving the Needle guests. So I think that's a great way to end our conversation today, Tom. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your perspective and and your time with, with with our
0: audience. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks so much for joining us today, Tom. That was a lot of fun. And thank you to those who are listening to the Moving the Needle podcast. We appreciate you listening and sharing this show with your colleagues. Thank you. And we'll see you again on the next episode of Moving the Needle.